This is Howard Kaplan, the author of the historical novels, The Damascus Cover and The Syrian Sunset. And you're listening to me on the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is celebrated Iranian-born actor Navid Negaban. He was incredible as the terrorist mastermind Abu Nazir in Homeland. And he played another bad guy, Syrian General Siraj, in the movie Damascus Cover that I just watched and which was based on the novel by Howard Kaplan, who recently was a guest on this podcast. And he played yet another bad guy, an Armenian mob boss in The Cleaning Lady. Do you detect a trend here? But on a much lighter note, Navid starred as the Sultan in the live-action remake of Aladdin, and he's currently working on the series The Old Man with Jeff Bridges and John Lithgow. But his extraordinary acting work has occurred after his harrowing journey from Iran's dictatorship through several European countries and ultimately to the U.S. I'm going to ask Navid to talk about that journey before we get to all his amazing TV and movie successes. And you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, that I feature a song of mine in every episode, underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make it relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I've chosen the song out of Tahini, from the album Play by my band Project Grand Slam. I chose this song for two reasons. First, it's got a Middle Eastern feel, so it fits with my guest's background. And second, like my guest, this song was featured in a television show, in my case, NBC's Lipstick Jungle, starring Brooke Shields. So I thought that it fit. So, Navid Negaban, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you so much, Robert. Thank you. Uh, so good to be here. And my gosh, what an amazing introduction. I'm starting to like myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've done so many things. But listen, I have a bone to pick. You play all these bad guys, and I want to discuss that. I want to see you play a romantic lead, okay? You have such a nice face, such a wonderful smile. You'd be terrific as a romantic lead, wouldn't you? I would love to do that. I mean, I started doing musicals and comedy back in Germany. So really, I fell in love with acting because I was able to make people laugh and forget all their problems and troubles. And uh, then I came to America, and here we are. I'm playing the big bad wolf. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about that transition, because you were born in Iran. And by the way, I have to add this. You know, when I started this podcast, you never know where it's going to go. 
and you don't know where the listeners are going to go. But the fourth largest market for my podcast is Iran. How about that? Amazing, amazing, amazing. See, that's one of the things that the people in America might not realize and understand, that Iranian people, especially Iranian youth, they're very well educated and they are very they are very curious. They are they want to tap into the outside world and they want to exercise their freedom. So they go around and around to find a way to reach out. Uh, especially with you and your podcast, I've uh, read about you and your journey. I think um, your journey is very inspiring, and that is something that attracts all your Iranian or your world listeners, because all of us, we have, we have blockages inside, we have fears inside. And what you have done and what you have achieved was overcoming all that fear and putting everything aside and jumping into the cold water without even thinking what's going to happen. And that, to me, is very empowering. And that's what attracts them, I believe. Well, I thank you for that. Yeah, I kind of felt myself, and I didn't know the answer, but you've touched upon it. The Iranian people have always been a very cultured, educated people throughout history. And now, putting aside the political situation there, I kind of felt that the Iranian people were reaching out for the kind of culture that the people that run the country don't want them to have. But it was such a remarkable surprise to me that so many Iranians were tuning into this podcast. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. And that tells me how, how curious and how hungry they are. And we see it through this movement it has been a revolution that's happening right now in Iran. has been amazing. And um, they are not asking for much. They are just asking to be seen and respected for who they are. We are not talking about the government. We are talking about people. People, yes. But when you left, I mean, the situation must have been treacherous for you. Did you have to sneak out of the country? You couldn't just walk out of it, could you? It was a it was a difficult situation. I left in '85, right in the middle of the war, and um, I had to. At that time, they were not giving a passport. You couldn't have a passport. Only in Tehran, you were able to get a passport. And I'm I was born in Mashhad, Iran, and. Um, I had to go and forge my great aunt's identification book to show that I'm in Tehran and go through the loophole in order to to be able to get a passport. And then from there I left, I went to Turkey. From Turkey, I went to Bulgaria. And then from Bulgaria, I went to Germany where I applied for asylum. And um, I mean, just imagine it, it was I, I never forget when I was leaving and when I was at the train station, my dad was telling me that you will come back in six months and you cannot survive. I said, if I scrape the bottom of a tanker, I will never come back. Hmm. But I think I read somewhere that you did go back in 2012. Is that correct? 
No, actually, the last time I went back, it was uh, 2004. Ah. 2004, and, and um, I was there for maybe five days. Um, I felt like a like a stranger in my own country. Uh, I couldn't understand. I couldn't, uh, you know, you are going back home and you are seeking uh, those um, those street corners, those alleyways that you grew up with, or even the mannerism that the people had, how how they were treating each other. And I went back and I was completely shocked what I saw. What were the biggest differences? The biggest differences were uh, was that at that time, people that were they were so involved in their own life or in in themselves just to survive and just to get ahead that we have lost in a way what I saw was a little bit of uh, um, lost of the kindness, the warmth that we had. And uh, the other thing was that the, the streets that I remember as a kid, we grew up, we used to play football on the street and riding our bicycles and uh, the corner stores that we used to hang out at, they, um, the morality police and how they uh, enforce their rules, it was like a it was like a dark shadow, a dark veil over the entire city. And even though that the people were trying to um, come up for a gasp of air, you could see how how everybody's struggling. Imagine. And I don't know, the, um, the sad part, of, I'm sorry I'm talking too much, but this is very close to my heart, this subject. Now, please, go. Um, the... The problem was that um, there, it was a generation right after my generation that uh, when they were growing up, they were completely brainwashed during the school, through the school. And I remember hearing, for example, um, a nine-year-old kid would go to the school and tell that, oh, my parents, they have a... Uh, they have a uh, stereo at home and they're listening to the music and then they will raid their homes and uh, take everything away from them. Mm -hmm. So it became very, um, you couldn't trust anyone. And that generation grew up and some of that, some of those people are, are right now part of the, part of the regime and part of the system. Then the generation after that, when they were born, that was when the when the when the internet uh, they were able to access the outside world. They were able to access what's what's happening, what's going on, and they were very well educated. And now they were hungry because they were saying, "Why, why they can do this and I cannot do that?" You know, I'm surprised with all the restrictions that the government put in place. But they didn't block the internet because that allowed the people to experience the rest of the world, all the things that you're talking about. Oh, they couldn't. The thing is that, okay, I went 
I went back in 2004. It was a censorship. You couldn't find a, a video. Uh, you couldn't find the DVDs on the street. You couldn't find the music on the street. It was very, very tight. And I went to my friend's house. They threw a party for me. I arrived in that party. And any kind of liquor that you can imagine was in that party. And then he has this huge, big screen TV sitting there. And is like uh, like a movie Back to the Future with all these equipments hanging around and the computer board and all that. And he's turning on his, his TV and he has over 400 channels. He's connected to everything. And then you go around the house, you see these funky dishes that was made to not to look like dishes, but they were all over his roof and he's covering everything and um and he's sitting there and says so what are we watching tonight can we watch one of your movies i i was completely surprised but it was all illegal i assume right what he did it was completely illegal but what i'm saying is that the kids in iran they are so smart so smart just look at some of the scientists who are working here in the u.s they came after the revolution. There are some young kids. I, I know some kids that they are, um, and they are in San Francisco. And they are fascinating. I have a cousin who lives in Germany. And she invented this new machine for the, for the medical supplies. I have no idea. I don't understand it. But... She fought her way in order to get what she wanted. And um, here we are. Well, I want to hear your story because I assume that you had to fight your way. I mean, you came over as a refugee. You went through all these other countries before you got to the United States. Now you're a big star in Hollywood. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. How did that transition go? What was the path that got you there? Well, um, that was a crazy journey. See, um, universe hands you gifts. Universe gives you road signs. And everybody who crosses your path, it delivers a gift or a message to you. It's your job to decipher it. If you are not so self-centered and self-egoistic, then you will be able to receive those gifts. When I was 16, 17 years old, I had a friend who was death in Iran. His name was Ardashir. So Ardashir one day told me, I'm going to a theater. I said, theater? Oh, okay, I'm coming with you. So I went to his theater, bunch of hearing disabled kids, they are there and they are performing pantomime. And I just fell in love with it. So I started going there and spending time with them and everybody was telling me, why, I mean, it's crazy. What do you want to do with that moving, um, silent movement and all that? Make the story short, I went there and I fell in love with it. And then when I arrived in Germany, I was at the refugee camp, Ingelheim. Uh, I was in the camp until I was processed. And when I was processed, I was sent to Kaiserslautern. Kaiserslautern, at that time, it was a very happening city. 
because Rammstein and Pogerway, the military bases were there. So all these American soldiers, they were there and got lots of theaters and music. And it was a, it was a happening city. And as a refugee, you don't have a work permit. You cannot work. You have to do what the government tells you to do. So um, I saw an ad that the theater company, Island Falls Theater, they are looking for an actor. They were doing Sunday in Park with George sometimes. And they were looking for an actor to portray George's emotions when George travels through the park to tell his story. They wanted to have a trail. They wanted to have an actor who can uh, silently convey George's emotions. So um, I went and I auditioned for it. And um, I got the part. And at that time, I couldn't speak German. But while I was in Kaiserslautern, every day I would go to Auslanderamt, which was like an office for the foreigners. I would go there and take my dictionary and sit there and help other Iranians with their German. I would translate for them. So the chief of police and everybody, they knew me. And I went there and I said, because they give you a monthly, um, uh, uh, like a, a, a social help is like a, um, they pay you monthly to help you. There's a financial help that you get. I went there and I said, um, please allow me to work. I don't want my social help. I don't want my financial help. Let me, let me work. And the, I told him what's happened. He gave me a he gave me a working permit and Zelfständige Arbeitserlaubnis, which allows me to do whatever I wanted to do. And uh, I went to the theater, and that was the beginning of my career. And when we were opening, um, some of the people from the police department, they came uh, with the flowers, and uh, that was a that was the start of my career. So I did some plays in Germany and. Uh, and then I got into clothing business. I started working for a clothing company. I used to model. I used to do runways. Then um, I started designing for them. And during that time, I got my visa for America. And I came here uh, to America. And um, I pursued my acting here. How did you break into the acting fraternity here? Oh. Uh, here, it was very difficult because when I was in Germany, I was able to play anything that I wanted to do. I, I played, uh, I worked on Rocky Horror Picture Show, Cancun in Paris, Puss in Boots, and nobody cared where I'm from. Uh, as long as I was able to uh, uh, create that illusion, illusion of the character. And when I came here, I was struggling because I couldn't speak English. And I started doing live western shows and i started doing uh, to do stunt work i went to school i went to college uh after a first year of college i got kicked out of the college i was asked by my professor to leave and never come back <laughs> and um i think that was the best gift that i was ever given and uh i had a I had another professor. I was studying Shakespeare. I had another professor, Russell St. Clair. And um, I was taking his classes. And he, uh, one day he pulled me um, on the side and he said, what are you doing here? I said, I want, I want to be an actor. He said, I studied in Royal 
Academy of Shakespeare. I've been doing this for 20 years. I wanted to be an actor and now I'm just a teacher and I teach once in a while I direct or maybe I get a part here and there. If you want to act, what the F are you doing here? Just go outside and try. It was a short film called Boundaries. They were looking for a mute trombonist. Mute trombonist. <laughs> mute trombonist. Someone like Buster Keaton and Charles Chaplin. <laughs> so I went, I went to the to go to the audition, and I didn't know the difference between trombone and trumpet. So I went to the music department and I asked one of the kids to show me how to slide the trombone, how to play with it. So I, I took the trombone, I started mimicking his movements, and then I handed him the trombone and I started miming everything. I went to the audition. I arrived, I saw that all these trombonists, they're sitting there, they're, uh, they're cleaning up the spit valve, and, <laughs> and I'm looking at it, and I said, oh, this is not- You have an I, imaginary trombone. <laughs> what, yeah, what am I doing here? So, so I, I went into the audition room, the director is Greg Durbin, incredible, incredible man, unbelievable. So I went in and everybody is there, and he wants to hand me a trombone. I said, no, 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 I have my trombone. And he looks at me, and I started miming everything. And, um, and right after that, he came up to me and said, I, I just want to tell you, I love what you have done. It is amazing, but the character that I'm looking is a character who is five foot something and is meek looking, is not, is not you. The look is not you. And I said, give me one more chance. I went to the secondhand store. I, uh, I got an old a frog, uh, like a tuxedo, tail tuxedo. I got a vest. I went home. I made a bow tie with a piece of fabric. And then I took a shoebox. I cut the shoebox into a straw hat. I painted black. And then I went to, to my next audition. When you're wearing a baggy pants, when your knees are bent, you, they don't see it. You look smaller. And I had the mind, the mind training came handy. And I started walking as somebody who was 5'2". And I'm walking and I'm knocking on his door. And he opens the door. He looks at me and says, here he is. And that's how I got the job. You know, what you're explaining is the real glamorous aspect of, <laughs> of acting, okay? Yes. What you had to do to go through to get the part of a mute trombonist. Yeah, but see, Robert, years ago, over, over almost 14 years ago, a friend gave me a gift. The classes that I went and I took mine, it came handy and it got me the job. The movie went, won the grand jury at Slam Dance. I was nominated for Best Actor for it at the Method Fest, screened at the Egyptian Theater, and that started my career here in America. Unbelievable. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. It's finally spring here in the United States. So I'm playing my song, Spring Dance, underneath this message. Spring is a time for renewal and growth. 
and I've just begun the third year of this podcast. It's been quite a ride so far. Over 170 episodes, more than 800,000 downloads, ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts, with listeners in 200 countries. My guests have included famous musicians, actors, directors, broadcasters, corporate CEOs, and others. My goal with each is to have fun and entertain you, the audience, and of course, to inspire you to follow and succeed at your dream. As a professional musician with a dozen highly acclaimed albums and millions of video views and streams, I infuse my music into each episode, and the podcast has allowed me to introduce my music to a worldwide audience. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And also, please sign up for our weekly emails, which keep you up to date on everything. The links are in the show notes to each episode. And also, please check out our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. I want to thank you all for listening and keep on rocking. All right, I got to jump to this because everyone's going to want to know, how'd you get the gig on Homeland? And tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're doing on The Old Man, which is a great show. Both of those shows are fantastic. So thank you. jump over to there, please. Thank you. Um, on Homeland, I, I just finished, I just finished 24. I played on the last season of 24, on the eighth season, I played Jamat. And I knew Howard Gordon. And I read the script. Abu Nazir had only two lines in the in the pilot. And I told my agent, and my agent told me, you just came up to off of 24. Everybody sends you offer. Why do you want to do this? I said, no, I, I have a feeling this is the project. This is the character that I want to play. So at that time, the agent that I had at that time, he disagreed and he didn't want to submit. So I went to the reading. Uh, poetry reading and Howard was there and he was reading part of the book and I walked up to him and I said Howard I just read your script I fell in love with this character who's playing it I said oh we we haven't thought about it we haven't casted it yet Um, I don't know I said do you mind he said really you want to play this I said yeah I want I want to play this character and he said okay I will set up a meeting it took about a week 10 days, I got a call. I went to a meeting. I met with Howard Gordon, Alex Gonza. I walked in and Alex got up and introduced himself. At that time, I had a full beard and longer hair. And Jamat character is a clean shaven, short hair. He's a diplomat. The behavior and mannerism is completely different. So I'm walking into the room with this long beard, long hair. And Alex gets up and... Um, he introduces himself and Howard starts laughing and says, this is our Jamat from last season. And Alex was surprised. So I sat down and we talked about the character and I told him what I see. I see the character as a father. I see him as a, as a teacher. I see him as a man who has been suffering and is trying to save his people. 
not a villain. He is not he the audience could perceive him as a villain, but he doesn't see himself as a villain. He sees himself as a father. And uh, Alex and Howard, they look at each other and they said, well, that's exactly what we were thinking. So we talked about the scripts a little bit and I left. I didn't hear back from them for over two weeks. And I said, why don't you keep your mouth shut? You're going <laughs> out there. You're giving all your ideas and see they have taken your ideas. You're not here. And my head was, hey, I was, I, I was mad. I was crazy. And then I got a call and he said, uh, we want to fly you to Charlotte, North Carolina. I went there and I told the custom designer, this is, this is what's important. And I believe um, um, actors will understand or you might understand what I'm talking about. They were, I was saying, I see this character wearing glasses. And they said, okay. They brought me all the glasses at the custom shop nothing at the prop shop nothing then i went to all the stores in charlotte and i couldn't find the glasses that i want i would try them and it wasn't the character then we went into a teeny tiny store and i i went there it was this older gentleman i started having conversation with him i said i said that this character he used to be he used to study in uk he's sophisticated he had the money to buy a beautiful pair of glasses back then, maybe in 70s or early 80s. And now that's all he has left from that time. So do you have anything for me? And then he looked at me and said, wait, I have a box in the back oh, uh, which are discontinued glasses. Let me go look. And he brought me back three glasses. And the first pair of glasses that he handed me, I put it on and it wasn't me anymore. It was Abu Nazir that I was looking at. You know, what's so interesting to me is you said that you started off with a script that had, what, one line, two lines in it? Two lines. And you defined the character. And then you did all this underneath work to really create that character. I mean, that's the amazing part to me. Uh, they, they were amazing, amazing creators. Henry Bremel, he was... Um, uh, he was one of our writers on the first season. He used to live in Iran. The father was a uh, was an agent in Iran. So this man, he passed away um, when we did the third season. Right, I mean, right at the beginning, he had a he passed away. Incredible human being. We spent weeks in my trailer to sit down and talk about episode ten of season two. And we shot episode 11 before episode 10 because he saw that I'm not happy and he wasn't happy with the story. And that's how we worked. Everybody was involved. I mean, it was, if I didn't have the support of the creators and the writers, I would have never been able to have the freedom to, to breathe life into this character. Evolve the character, yeah. You know what I'm interested in is on these shows like a homeland, do they kind of write them as they go along or do they have the whole season outlined and all written and you're making little changes here or there? How does that work? Uh, when we were working on a homeland, they knew the journey. 
they had an idea of what's going to happen. They had the Bible. So based on the Bible, they knew exactly what's going to happen or how semi what's going to happen during each episode or the journey of the character. But the details that would be developed as we went along, there were moments that we had to change in the script. And there were moments that they were not, um, those moments that were not right for when we were on the set and when we were interacting with each other. Do they allow you to improvise or do you have to stick to the script? Um, I had the, I had the freedom to play with it. I had the freedom to play with the essence of the character. I tried to stick to the line, uh, to the lines. Uh, there were moments that, uh, okay, it was something that I said, and you know, it doesn't feel right right now. Do you mind if we try something different? Can we, can we do it differently? And most of the time you have the writer on the set and they would jump in and they would say, oh, okay, fine. Okay, you can, let's try it. And there were moments, they were not in the script, but um, they were just, it was just came to life and we just let it go. There, there are scenes that, uh, um, Damien and I and I we were standing there, and those moments are not written, but it was created in that moment, and we kept going and improvising with our actions. And those are some of the scenes that they were they kept in the in the show. See, that's what I love. You know, as a musician and as a jazz musician, it's all about improvisation. And when you're there with the group and you're playing live, things happen. Things it goes in different directions. Sometimes they the directions are set in advance. Sometimes, as you said, there's an arc to where you're, where you're going. There's a concept, but you kind of let things happen. And I think that's where the creativity comes in. And obviously in acting, it's the same. It's, um, it's the same. And see, uh, you and your music, there are moments that it doesn't go the way that you want it. But how it goes, the audience doesn't know how it was supposed to go. But if you stop, you tell them that it was a mistake. But if you keep going, it's a beautiful, beautiful moment that it comes out, a beautiful note that it comes out, and that is what makes it. 100%. I have to tell you this. In the pilot, there is a moment that I'm coming in, and Damien is, uh, is there, and I'm telling him to kill his friend, uh, Walker. Uh, the, I hand him a gun, and I tell him to shoot him. Shoot him. And then he breaks down and he starts crying. And I'm standing right there. And for some reason, the connection that Damien and I, we had, it was so brotherly. And he was incredible. He was an amazing actor to work with. And I took him in my arms and I started caressing his hair and comforting him. That wasn't in the script. And when that happened, the cuts in the script is me handing him the gun and telling him to shoot him. That's the cut. The director, Michael Cuesta, he didn't cut and he kept going. Let the cameras roll. Let the camera roll. And that is the scene that you see in the pilot. And that was when the bond between Abu Nazir and I mean, it happened. That's that's when when the relationship came came to life. Yeah, it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant.
Thank you, thank you. And uh, and the old man, amazing experience, and incredible team. I um, I'm playing um, uh, Hamzat, and I'm playing the older Hamzat. This is another bad guy. No, I no actually. I mean, it depends how you look at it. Uh, and I, it's for the audience to judge him, but uh, the younger version is being played by Pej Vahdat, who is a very good friend of mine, and then I'm playing the older Hamzat. And uh, it, it's for you to see. We are we were in the middle of the shoot. Now, because of the strike, we um, we put a hold on the show, to, and we don't know when we are coming back, and I hope everything goes well, and here we are. Well, it's been quite a career, and I'm sure that you've got a lot more to go, and I still want to see you in that leading role situation, okay? We're going to push for that. <laughs> Why don't you write it? Yes, let's do it, Robert. All right. We have been speaking here to Navid Negaban, an amazing actor. He's been in Homeland. He's been in The Old Man. He's played the Sultan. We didn't even get a chance to talk about that. I want to thank you so much for being on the show and for telling your story. It's been a wonderful experience. That was a pleasure, Robert. Thank you so much. And I hope we get a chance to just chat more. You and I, I, I I'm sure that I will learn so much from you with your journey and your experience. And I would love to hear more about it. Well, thank you so much. All right. We're going to listen now to that song that started out the podcast. It's my song called Out of Tahini. I want to thank you all for listening and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Thank you.